0: You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies, and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward cwes-euc. Well, thank you very much for the kind introduction. And welcome back after lunch. So I hope um, you will I will get your attention now when your body start to digest the delicious lunch bags we got over the break. And before I start, I just wanted to thank, uh, like previous speakers, the organizers. You've done a great job, uh, especially Elaine, Bob, and Mary, who helped me out and took care of me these couple of days, including a visit to the NOAA facility here, which for me, well, you heard my background. For me, it's a great place if you're interested in Russia America relations. We spoke about that. If you're interested in climate policy or deal with it daily as I do to come here at the Alaska, which is basically a national you know, research site and with a lab from a state agency here who is one of those responsible for monitoring what's happening. That was a, a great possibility for me myself and we saw the the glacier and I was told how it's been receding, so everything falls together very neatly for me personally here. And I would also take the opportunity to thank the fellow speakers here. It's been also a a fantastic opportunity for me to sit back and listen to uh, state-of-the-art research in EU affairs, and it's very encouraging for a civil servant working for the European Union uh, to hear uh, your perspectives and insights and see that as a research field, it's very much alive. So um, very nice thing. A, a final observation. I, I spoke with Carl about that. I, I noticed when I arrived at a hotel, I thought it was the EU flag that they had hoisted outside the museum. When you know. I looked, no, it's the Alaskan state flag. And it's extremely similar. It's the stars, yellow stars, on a blue background. So you see we love those colors very much. Um, perhaps a few more personal words before I start uh, my part, my talk today. Um, I actually started out uh, my student life uh, doing a lot of things in the 80s, uh, apart from being a student, uh, focusing on East European affairs. So it's been interesting this tilt to Eastern Europe and Russia, and I was very active myself in working with NGOs in there in the late 80s in the field of environmental protection. We started up um, a Swedish-Polish bilateral NGO in the late 80s, for example. and. Uh, um, environmental um, awareness and environmental problems was, were a very important uh, part of uh, the uh, independence movement and civic movements in the late 80s. So, so, and gathered a lot of people, almost any, every country in the Central and East European part had, had one or two environmental issues where people could focus around when, <laughs> they, when they finally the communist system fell apart. Um, so I spent a lot of time there, um, and then I went to the United States for various reasons. I had the uh, opportunity to, to uh, be a grad student at UC Berkeley in the early 90s, where I worked at an American research lab. I actually did energy analysis of East European, Russian, and Polish energy statistics for, for a study group there, and we were financed by the Department of Energy. Uh, so I actually even worked for them indirectly in a way. And then I returned to Europe and gradually ended up with the European Commission, which I should say is the European executive branch of the European institutions. It's basically does, is similar to uh, a national or federal government uh, in its responsibilities, with everything relating to EU competences. So, a bit of me um, about me, and uh, climate policy. Yeah, I've basically been engaged in that since '99. First, a lot of internationally, and then gradually I've been uh, focusing very much on implementing and, and uh, drawing up and negotiating internally in the European Union our climate legislation. I will tell you a lot about that in a, in a moment. But let me see. Now first, I wanted just to check how much you have actually picked up during these couple of days. So I wanted to run very quickly an EU quiz. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you six questions. Going to go real fast, and uh, you know, no devices, no googling, uh, no help from friends, and so on. And I don't know what to do with the, uh, my, uh, the fellow uh, EU scholars here. I think they should participate, uh, and I will expect that you nail all the six questions. Anyway, we'll just check. So the first question: How many people live in the European Union, roughly? So. You just show hands. First alternative, 400 million people. Anyone goes for that? No. 450? Few more. 500? Even more. And 550. The right answer is C. It's 510 million uh, inhabitants in the European Union. Next question, which of the following countries is not a monarchy? You know, we have a lot of monarchies in the European Union. We're not only uh, democracies, but monarchies and republics, all kinds of different systems. And one of these smaller member states of the European Union is not a monarchy. Is it Belgium? Uh, Denmark? Finland? Yeah, you could that. And Netherlands? Yeah, it's Finland, of course. Finland is a republic. And I would like perhaps later in the afternoon, one of my favorite subjects coming from a constitutional monarchy myself, namely Sweden, is this f- uh, interesting observation. How does it come that most of the stable democracies in European Union are actually monarchies? I like to tease the republicans, I mean republican <laughs> coming from republics <laughs> uh, with that. So just for reflection. Next question. Which is the most spoken language in the European Union? By that I mean uh, the language that is uh, native language of the, mo- has the highest number of native speakers, sorry. Do you think it's English? No? French? German? Or Spanish? It's German. We have close to 100 million speakers because we don't only have German, Germany, of course, we have a Austria, we have Luxembourg, even Belgium where I live. German is an official language, <coughs> even if it's a very small minority. And we have the province of South Tyrolia in Italy, where they speak German. So if you go to the European Parliament, you will find that roughly one, at least one-seventh of the parliamentarians have German as they So German is actually a very important language in the European Parliament, so interesting. And now, this you should know. I just expect you to to answer the right one. How many countries are members in the European Union? Still, I should say. (laughs) You think it's 25? No, 26? 27? 28? Right, we are 28 members. And if the Brexit now is completed, we will be down to 27. And then we'll have a few countries, as was noted earlier today, waiting to join right, two more questions, how many official languages has the European Union? We have quite a few, anyone who has traveled in Europe, he knows that. Uh, do you think we have 20 official languages in the European Union, hands up, 22, 24, 26. It's 24 official languages. And all these languages are used when the ministers sit in plenary or the European Parliament sit in plenary with simultaneous interpretation, which is a very interesting topic in itself, by the way. And it works. The UN has six official languages. Final question. Now we come into deep culture <laughs> thing. <laughs> now, which EU member state won the European men's football? And I mean the real thing now, soccer championship <laughs> in 2016. France? No. No. Germany? Yeah, yeah. Portugal? Or Spain? It was Portugal unexpectedly. <laughs> and for the first time. Good for them. Now, was there anyone here who actually got six, right? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Then I'm going to tease my at the table. Uh, actually, it's uh, surprising. I thought I would at least have a few. but. Um, I think during, I've done memory of these presentations, I think among the students I talked, to, there was only one, there was actually one young man who, who knew all of these. Very good. So you see, uh, that's another advantage of, of uh, being a member of the European Union, you can easily do these trivia quizzes. Let me now go to <laughs> the, ta-da, my main presentation today. And I usually start showing this slide, uh, which I think, because I like Gary (laughs) Larson. but I think actually there is a serious note about this. It's a bit, you know, um, because we do, when we talk about climate change, we talk about global warming, it's a very serious challenge for humankind, for nations. and that's, so that's the bad news. The good news is, of course, that we are a bit better equipped than the dinosaurs in terms of brain power um, to solve it, and we still have the tools and possibilities to do so. And essentially what I'm going to do today is just to tell you how the, what the EU has been doing so far in their attempt to solve or contribute to the solution, rather, uh, of this global, truly global problem. So that's what my talk today is about. And I suppose you will forget most of the content of my slides uh, after my talk, but I would really like to highlight these things. You know, if you walk away from here and want to remember a few things, these are the key messages I would like to highlight. Um, and the first thing I want to point out is that EU climate action uh, really follows a strong tradition of multilateralism. Multilateralism is what the EU is about to a large extent, but from that comes that we also pursue this internationally. I think all the different presentations before have shown this in a very very, uh, clear way. And when it comes to environmental and climate problems for that matter, we are strong supporters of addressing this on UN level of course, because that's the tool, that's the forum we have. And this is a truly global problem. And even if the EU is good about what they're doing, and I'm going to try to argue that today, so giving you a positive example amidst all the challenges we have and that you've heard about, um, it's not enough. We need to address <coughs> these things together at a global level. What is interesting with, with climate policy, I think, for anyone who is interested in political science or you know, political economy, it's a very interesting case study. Because it has evolved relatively quickly in a covering a rather complex, Complex area and, and uh, it's evolving all the time. Um, so, you know, even if you're not interested in climate policy, climate science as such, it's a very interesting area just to study what has happened in the European Union. Uh, and what you will see is that it's, it's really about practical policy implementation and how it's evolved and been revised and, and tinkered with and uh, uh, changed in the past 20 years. Um, and as any other field of EU competence, you will find that is essentially a combination of EU wide legislation. We have pretty much of that in the field of climate uh, policy, and of course, national action, what member states are doing themselves. So you will have this interplay all the time on the ground in any given country. Uh, very important, uh, you will hear, see that in all documents, council conclusions, where heads of state and government. Uh, agree on on what they should think should be the main principles of climate policy and I continue to do so, are cost-effectiveness. Basically, whatever we do should be cost-effective in the sense what it delivers in terms of emission reductions compared to what you will demand from countries and taxpayers. Not unique, of course, to this policy area. Fairness, it's another leading principle and I will try to explain how we try to address that in some of the climate legislation that we have. And market-based instruments, market-based instruments, the most known of those of you who have any inkling about EU climate policies, European emissions trading system, which we've had in place since 2005. Um, So these are really, really important things. This is what we adhere to collectively, and we have stuck to this solution now for a good 10 years at least. Good news, what we like to present from the EU perspective is that we have managed, thanks to these policies, to decouple economic emissions from economic growth. Um, two other observations that I think is important, what I've seen in my own life working as a civil servant in this a- area, uh, is that climate and energy policies have become increasingly integrated. They are integrated in the European Union. It's not unique for us, but it's been very strongly going in that direction in the past 10 years. When I started out, climate policy was something that was done in an environmental <coughs> ministry, responsibility of environment minister, and it didn't bother too much other parts of the government. But this has changed profoundly since 10 years or so, yeah, 10 years. uh, It's now a priority for heads of government. It's being integrated and increasingly in other policy areas in European Union, such as transport, agriculture. And that is, of course, very important because what we're talking about is cutting emissions and reacting to global warming across sectors in the economies of the European Union. So after this summary, so what I'm going to do today uh, is basically to cover, try to cover four things. First, a bit about European Union, uh, how decision making is made, very simple, but I think it's, it's, it's a good bar- background just to uh, recap how things are done in European Union. Not many are familiar with that, not even in the European Union. Uh, second, climate policy in European Union, a bit about how it's evolved and uh, the main principles Then I will give you a few examples of climate legislation stuff that I've been working on myself before I came here, by the way, September, I came to University of Washington, Seattle. And the two previous years, I've been busy together with my colleagues at the Climate Department of the European Commission, where I work, to draw up uh, new climate legislation, doing impact assessments, stakeholder consultations, and then starting negotiating it with European Council Member States and the European Parliament. And the good news is that by December last year, a couple of months ago, we had a deal on that specific part that I was working on. So so we have now agreed actually on what we're going to do until 2030, not only to 2020. So that's good news. And finally, I will say something briefly about Paris Agreement and International Outlook. That's what I hope to do in the next 40 minutes and we should have some time for questions. So now, let's start with the European Union. It's a internal market, you know that, and with multi-level governance, you heard that too. Uh, very important is this, these freedoms or freedom of movements of for, for important things, goods, services, labor, and capital. And it's an amazing thing you know, that you have 28 countries, if you think about it, against European history uh, that can move around more or less freely across these countries. And of course, befo- because of these reasons that we have an internal market covering these uh, free movements, we need to have EU legislation in very many areas that are the same uh, rules for all member states, because otherwise you know, the market wouldn't work. Um, and what is also important to note is that environmental and climate legislation are among those sectors or areas of policy that are covered to a very large extent by EU legislation. So very much of what's happening in terms of environmental regulation on member state level across European Union is falls back on EU legislation. And that's, you know, this cross border problems, transboundary pollution it's an easy, comparatively easy area to agree on. And the same goes for climate. And we have, as you will see, quite a lot of legislation that has evolved on EU level in the past 15 years or so. Now, what is particular and perhaps peculiar, if you like, with how legislation is agreed in the European Union is this so called co-decision procedure, where you have two co-legislators, as we tend to call them: the European Council, with all the member state governments represented, and the European Parliament, where you have about 750 directly elected members of parliament on top of or in parallel with their national parliaments. And these two bodies are the ones who decide legislation. The commission has the privilege, where I work, to propose legislation. And when it's been agreed, entered into force, enacted, we monitor and check compliance. So we have a lot of, of uh, tasks. And if you like powers, ultimately, we can take even the member states to the European Court of Justice if they don't follow with their legal obligations. Um, and if we take the example of this piece of climate legislation that I've been working on in the past two years or so, uh, what we then do is that we uh, first have a very extensive uh, uh, public and stakeholder consultation. That's the last point here. And I want to stress this very much because this is something that has been strengthened in the past few years compared to when I started working in the Commission in 2003. And it's actually very important. And <coughs> it is true that many perceive the European, commis- uh, European Union, sorry, and the decision-maker is very opaque and so on. But actually, if, you, if you're interested to follow... It's very transparent in many ways. What we did first was that we, f- we for our legislation that we formulated some key questions that we were asked, asked the public. And it was available for everyone on the internet for 12 weeks. And it's announced in different forums. And any private person, any legal person, and indeed even governments and companies and association of interest groups, give them their comments. And then, of course, in parallel, we have a lot of uh, pre uh, consultation, if you like, with member states. Our piece of legislation happened to be the main ob- uh, addressed mainly to the main member state governments. It was about setting targets, limits for their emissions, so it was mostly governments, right? And this process, both the totally open and formal one and the little bit more informal one where you talk bilaterally and, and multilaterally with member states, gives us in the commission a very good feeling for what is possible, what are the key issues. and. I should step back, I went a bit too fast. Usually such an impetus to start all this work comes from the European Council and or the Parliament. Most often it's the Council who concludes in top meeting that the Commission, they request the Commission to come up with a proposal in this and this area and they can give us more or less indicative or prescriptive guidance and then it's up to the Commission how much they want to follow. The EU Member States decided already 2014 in October to cut their emissions by 40% by 2030. So that was our starting point. So we started and they asked the commission to come up with different proposals, <coughs> gave us certain uh, directions, if you like, or advice. Um, and we did so. Um, after these consultations, we presented the legislation 2015 and let me see now, 2016. And then negotiations started, and what then happens It that the European Council forms an opinion, a common position, by negotiating with each other and we heard a presentation earlier today about uh, the different EU diplomats which are usually experts from their ministries sent to the working groups of the council where they negotiate on behalf of instructions and from the government. In parallel, the European Parliament tries to draw up their opinion usually in, in in a committee, in our case it's an environmental committee. And if things goes fast, they will, you know, pretty much at the same time arrive and adopt their positions, which might be more or less different, of course, from the commission proposal. And then they go into this co-decision procedure. And as soon as the commission has presented legislation, as we did in this case, the summer of 2016, we sit back. We take part in the council meetings. We give presentations to the European Parliament. But uh, because we are the ones who know the legal and technical, of course. uh, different parts and, and, and details of the legislation, but the decision are with those two co-decision partners, uh, parties. Sorry, so that's very important to understand. And so it it's quite can be quite a cumbersome process, but when there is political will, things can go pretty fast. Now, the other thing with EU legislation that I wanted to point out, this is self-evident, uh, but I think it's it's useful uh, to underline again and that is just the sheer diversity of the mm-hmm. EU. Um, we grew very fast. We had this big bang as I think uh, was referred to earlier and that it w- really was. I was in the commission and we managed to expand from, from 15 to 28 countries in a very short period. That was quite amazing, increasing, doubling I think the number of official languages. Um, so we have to deal with that diversity in cultural language and so on. but when you then design a concrete policy or legislation of course you have to look at the different uh, circumstances in all these countries and somehow take account of them in order to find some kind of solution that can be agreed in the end um, and are, there are solutions that are acceptable to all and in our case you deal with energy related emissions it's a lot about economy activity levels how rich our countries how much is reasonable to demand from them in terms of emission cuts? What are their main sectors that produce emissions? It looks very different among countries. Um, energy uh, structure, these, all these kind of things we need to look, uh, to look into. And don't forget that the difference between the richest and poorest countries in the European Union is about a factor of six, if I remember correctly. So Bulgaria, which I think still is, has the lowest GDP per capita is perhaps five or six times lower than the GDP per capita of Luxembourg, there are very big differences within one union. And yet we managed to agree on things in climate policy. And this is what I'm going to tell you about now. So this is, I think, is a very nice graph. I'm going to show you two graphs now um, because it summarizes basically what we've achieved so far, progress in terms of cutting greenhouse gas emissions in the European Union, and the challenges we have ahead. Now if you look at this graph, you will see the green line here falling uh, in a zigzag pattern uh, to a 23 percentage drop in total greenhouse gas emissions across the European Union compared to 1990. The red symbol there, the triangle over the year 2020 indicates our target, which is laid down in EU legislation. It's a 20% reduction. So we've done very well actually. We're, we're and you see the, the dotted line continuing in green-blue after 2016 shows the projections, that's what the expected emissions from the EU. And you can see that we will be, we are expected to be well below our target in 2020, continue to to, uh, reduce our emissions, but the challenge is that we now set ourselves a new tougher target for 2030, which is a 40% reduction, and you can see from the year 25, the gap increases. So that gap between what's expected emissions with the current situation and what needs to be done according to EU legislation, um, this is what we um, uh, hope to cover then, uh, to, 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 uh, to reach with those uh, pieces of climate legislation that were agreed recently. So we've done well so far, but we have quite some challenge uh, until 2030. And if we look at the long-term target, of course, we need to go very much below this by 2050, then it becomes even more challenging. Here's the second graph I wanted to show you, Uh, again, just a very simple display of how GDP has evolved in the European Union since 1990. You see by 2015, it was an increase by 50%. And you compare that to the emissions that was cut by 2015 this time by 22%. So we have managed to decouple emissions from economic growth. And this is, of course, something we're very keen on showing internationally, that it is possible. Now, if you would break this down and look at different individual member states, you will have very different patterns. You will have some countries that even do better, and some who have had much more of a struggle in decoupling. So it's not a rosy story across you know in each individual case, but collectively, and that's the whole point, because we collectively agreed to do this we are so fine doing well. But again, we need to do the gap needs to increase, the decoupling needs to be stronger in the next five, 10, 15 years and so on. And that's a big challenge. Now, a few words about climate policy. Why is it so special, in my view? Um, well, First, I think it's very important to note that it's driven by science. That's not unique for climate policy. We'll find a lot of policies which are that. But what we have here is an established international institution for regularly uh, collecting the state of art science and knowledge and ask these scientists through the intergovernmental panel for climate change to give recommendations. And they do so regularly. The first one came out, I think, in and 89 and they are renewed every 50 years or so. And this is the basis for the international negotiations, and it's been the basis for our leaders in the European Union to decide in what direction should we go, how to inform ourselves and update our policies. And that's very important. You have a direct dialogue link to that. And don't forget that this climate science that is agreed internationally is ultimately agreed on the political level, because the recommendations in the final Uh, Summary reports are agreed by government officials from the different parties, 190 or so, in under the UN, including North American and American. So it's, you know, it's, and it's usually then filtered so some would say that the conclusions are even a bit more careful perhaps than some other scientists would, but it's important we have a politically agreed scientific document that is the cornerstone of international negotiations. And very important for the EU, it has been so in the past over 20 years. So that's what number one. Number two, another evident thing is of course that climate change, global warming is a global problem, a transboundary problem. As I said earlier, it's not good enough if we do our things, we do our uh, uh, homework in the European Union. We need to convince others to participate as well because it's a global challenge. That's why it's so important for us and why we spend so much effort in working internationally for the international agreements, such as the Paris Agreement in 2015, And the final point links to this, this is the continuous interaction with international agreements, international negotiations that you have basically on an annual basis. So the EU tries to put down its foot a bit earlier than others. We tried it. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it had no effect whatsoever. And then we see what happens and we take the next step influenced by the international negotiations. A few words. Uh, also about the legal basis for environment and climate policy in Europe. It's very strong. It's laid down in the treaty, the latest treaty, the Lisbon Treaty, our constitution. Um, environment has been there for quite some time, the, the need to care for the environment. And I, uh, the language on climate change basically to support international efforts to address climate global warming uh, is there since 2007. That's a very strong legal foundation for any legislation that we do. So if any politician or member state would say, you know, should we really deal with this? They have agreed 2007 to have this as one of the fundamental issues. There are many of them, not only environment and climate, of course. And um, as I already said, mainstreaming of climate policy into other sectors, we can see that very strongly in the past 10 years. And a continuous review and fine tuning of legislation. This is very special for climate policy. more than in many other areas, because it's evolving all the time. The scientific findings uh, are refined and updated and international negotiations are evolving all the time. Okay, another nice summary slide in my view, because it gives you a kind of visual illustration of the the gradual and increasing (laughs) intensity of climate legislation and policy involvement in the European Union since the 90s. I will, you know, I will spare you from going through every point, but basically three uh, observations I would do here is firstly you will see increased intensity. We really step up our work uh, from 2009 and onwards. Uh, we established the emissions trading system in 2005, it was the first time we had a market based instrument uh, across all the uh, European countries. We didn't have any emissions trading at all. This idea came from North America, from the United States, United States pitched the idea of using international emissions trading when in negotiations on Kyoto Protocol number one under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in the late 90s. And then as you know uh, George Bush Jr. decided to pull out and not ratify the Kyoto Protocol 2001. Uh, and America had some experience of emissions trading sulfur dioxide and NOx uh, in the earlier 90s. And in Europe we didn't have that experience. And in the commission and in discussion with member states, we then eventually decided to go for quite a bold step to introduce emissions trading uh, for covering almost half of all the emissions and all in energy intensive industry in 2005. And That has since then been a cornerstone of our legislation and it has been complemented with other uh, legislations to cover other sectors since then. So more and more happens. That's number one. Number two, what I want to point out again underline how climate and energy has been increasingly integrated. You can see 2009, we had a big uh, uh, legislation package agreed with both climate and clean energy legislation. That was for the first time that they were joined with each other. We can talk more perhaps in questions and answers why that happened, uh, which is an interesting thing in itself. And you can see that five years later, I told you about this council agreeing on a 40% emission reduction target in 2030. We are talking still about climate and energy, so we have followed this integration since then. Um, A third, perhaps, observation is um, that we are gradually trying to look, take the long-term perspective more and more seriously. We had a first discussion paper, uh, Roadmap 2050, we call that, a discussion paper with the commission where our services outlined different strategies to cut emissions by 80 to 95 percent compared to 1990, which would be the European reasonably, reasonable in our view, contribution to, to global cuts. It's very much, and, but it didn't really take off uh, and it was not surprising because we well, were in the depth of a recession at that time. We are now preparing an updated, revised document to continue that discussion, what are we going to do after 2030. So we're not leaning back. We agreed on 2030, we're already thinking about what we're going to do after that. Okay, so I told you about EU climate and energy or what we call clean energy targets. I should just repeat that so you you have these numbers clear. Uh, Greenhouse gases, renewable energy sources, energy efficiency, that's what these abbreviations mean here. And you can see 2020 um, targets which are in effect across the EU. Uh, so we have actually a, a three-prone strategy, if you like, to cut emissions collectively by 20%, to increase the share of renewable energy and final energy consumption to 20%, and to improve our energy efficiency by 20%. And you can imagine what a fantastic how this sounded, 2020 by 2020. So I don't know really who came up <laughs> with that. but. It was very difficult to write briefings, but you had to check that you got all the 20s right, right? (laughs) But this is what we have in place. And uh, now we re-agreed in December on the next step, uh, 2030 milestone for greenhouse gases. That's what I told you about. That's the 30% cut, everything compared to 1990. We have proposed uh, a 27% uh, target, so a, a relatively speaking smaller increase in renewables by 2030. And we have proposed a 30% target for improvement of energy efficiency. These two points are still negotiated. They're still in council in European Parliament. And here it has, uh, it's hard to say we're going to land because the European Council, they are uh, less ambitious. They, okay, 27% is okay. We're not sure that 30% we can manage that, but maybe. And the parliament has a position, we should go for 35%, they want more. In climate policy, that's been quite the typical Uh, positioning that the parliament has tried to be more ambitious than the member states. So they should be agreed I think still in the next few months um, and it's a bit hard to say where it's going to be, but at least these figures I would say. Uh, I won't talk about this thing that popped up here, energy union governance, it sounds very strange perhaps, governance, energy union, but just note in the European Union one of the biggest shifts in policy in the past few years related to security is that we now have a common energy union where we're really trying seriously to integrate the energy parts into the internal market. We have not been very successful with that. Historically energy, power production, energy was national competence. Member states were not very interested in uh, EU meddling too much in it. But since 2007, that changed a lot. Uh, and this governance is simply about setting up a monitoring and reporting system, which we already have in place for greenhouse gases every year, annual reports from member states, and doing something sim- similar for see how they're doing on energy efficiency and renewables, and have this as a unified reporting system uh, for all these three activities uh, until 2030. So that's what we're building up now. So we have a peer review system, if you like, with reporting obligations for which the commission is responsible to check compliance with all this legislation. And we're really trying now to integrate the way energy and climate is reported. In most member states, these are separately done. So what we then have in terms of climate legislation, and now I'm going to zoom in on two of these, is a comprehensive coverage of all emission sources inside the European Union. And it's basically broken down in three pieces. Emissions trading, which I told you about, that covers all the energy intensive industry. Uh, we have something we call effort sharing among member states. That sounds very nice. Uh, originally when we came up with this legislation, somebody proposed burden sharing. Not good. Effort sharing is better. But seriously speaking, it's what it's about. We're sharing out the efforts to cut emissions among member states. More about that in a moment. These. This legislation in the middle covers all the other sectors that are not industry. Uh, Transportation, agriculture, emissions from waste, landfills, these kind of things. Emissions from heating buildings, if it's not electricity, uh, from those fuels. And here uh, we have a very different approach. Here member states just get a target. Depending on their their economic power, they get a, a target how much they need to cut their emissions and it's up to them how they do that. And then we have this monitoring and verification and reporting system. What was lacking, this is now in place, 2020, and we renewed it for 2030, with tougher targets. The new thing, what we didn't have so far in EU legislation was covering the lacking part, namely everything that's uh, leaking, if you like, or from uh, land use, land use change in forestry. It's basically soils and forests. (coughs) And here, you can actually go two ways, because you might have a forest system in the country which has net uptakes of carbon dioxide because of forest growth and good management. So, but we didn't really have that covered. And that was more difficult to agree because we have so very different countries. We have countries with hardly any trees at all like Malta. We have countries like Finland and Sweden which look pretty much like Alaska or Washington where I live now with a lot of forests and a very strong interest in forest industry and forest management. But all these member states agreed on now a cap which says that by 2030 we will not allow any net emissions from these sectors. That's very important. So we now have a bubble, if you like, a cap that covers everything, a completeness. And this is what me and my colleagues then now will have to implement and monitor in the next few years until 2030. A few words then of the two pieces of legislation that are cornerstones of delivering emission cuts, emissions trading. And this sharing of targets among member states for the other sectors. Um, Emissions trading, why was this chosen? Well, it was chosen because we needed to find some kind of instrument that was cost efficient, cost effective, and we could focus on the most energy intensive and emission intensive in terms of greenhouse gases industries. Um, And of course, since it deals with industry, we need to have the same rules for everyone across the EU because we're dealing with internal market. We're dealing with businesses, companies that are active on the uh, internal common market. Um, and the next bullet point is really things that were very important for the politicians to agree on. So we had to find some kind of uh, solutions within the emissions trading system to uh, try to make it. Uh, show that it would promote sustainable jobs and growth, so basically green technologies. By cutting emissions we create incentives for developing such technologies Um, to uh, uh, also to find solutions to protect energy intensive industries because some were concerned that if we have an (coughs) emissions trading system in the European Union and we don't have it in other countries maybe the cost for us will be too high so we will have to move our activities elsewhere that what they call carbon leakage. So an industry basically goes from inside EU to outside and it continues to emit, right? Uh, so far we have no evidence that this has happened because of the emissions trading system. But it's, it's a concern. Um, and another in very interesting point here is that we are auctioning parts of this emission rights. Emission trading is a cap and trade. You decide on a cap. You allocate emission permits to all the actors, what we call installations, there are 11,000 of them. And this gives them the right, how much can they emit every year. If they emit more than they are permitted, they can go to the market and buy additional uh, such permits from other installations that have cut their emissions more than they needed. So that's what the trading instrument is about. So what is good is, with this system, you know what the emission cap will be in the future, because we have already decided by 2020 and 2030 the emission cap will be so and so much. Uh, What we don't know directly is what will be the price of these allowances, as we call them, these rights to emit, which are traded among industries. right? And ideally, the price should be high enough to work as a signal, price signal, for these industries to start long-term investments in other cleaner technologies, non-carbon, non-emitting technologies. So what has been very successful, I would say, is to implementing this system and put the cap in place. What has been less successful, at least in the eyes of many observers and outside experts, is that the price has been too low. It's currently about 10 euros per ton. And some say it should really be somewhere between 20 and 30, closer to 30 preferably, to have a strong effect as a pricing. And we have been working very hard in the commission and uh, trying to convince member states and parliament that we need to make these targets even stricter for the period of 2030. That was basically what the negotiations were about between the parliament and the member states about the future of this emission trading. They now agreed on the compromise for 2030. And we could see after that agreement that price started to climb up. So apparently, the market actors are, are factoring in that the price will increase uh, in the next 5 to 10 years. So that is a very important instrument. And we are happy to see in the European Union that it's being used in many other parts. You have a voluntary uh, trading ag- uh, system in the eastern states of the United States. California has a system that's actually pretty similar to ours. China is starting up a big system. If they that's gets in place, it will surpass us, ours, in volume eventually. South Korea's emissions trading, New Zealand. And we have three countries in Europe which have linked with our emissions trading systems. We're actually 28 plus three countries participating. This just shows you the principle of the cap. Um, you will have a gradient. So every year the target is cut further, right, by 1.7%. And after 2020, it will be 2.2. So basically the gradient will be even steeper. So this, So the industries not only have to cap year one, next year they know it will be even less. So they have to look, plan ahead. Um, And so you're gradually decreasing the amount that you can emit across the European Union. This is how it works. The other piece of legislation, where I personally have worked a lot in the past 10 years actually, uh, is what we call effort sharing for non-emission trading sectors. That's a very cumbersome name. It basically covers the sectors you can see here. The other 55%, so more than half of total emissions, it's very important in its scope The problem is that you can't easily put in an emissions trading system that covers all kinds of sectors. It's easier with stationary, energy intensive industries in a couple of sectors like steel, aluminum refineries, power plants, easier to regulate in that sense. Here we are dealing with very diverse sectors, basically everything you do as private citizens or small companies, you know, when you transport yourself, when you eat. When you heat your buildings where you work and live, all this creates a mission, we need to regulate it somehow. And the idea there was to do something simple. I really liked the, there were two, two uh, nice uh, slides, illustrations in Marriott's presentation earlier this day. Uh, and the one <laughs> with this formula, uh, how to try to allocate uh, refugee quotas, which has not been very successful as you know. If that's really true, I would like a copy of that, that was just amazing. I can assure you that not all EU legislation used these complicated formulas. We used a very simple one. We just divided the caps according to GDP per capita because it covered this fairness aspect. You remember I spoke about cost effectiveness and fairness. In emissions trading it's very much about cost effectiveness. We need to find a system so we can at the lowest possible cost cut emissions in the sector, uh, industry sectors. When it comes to member states obligations, they need to somehow find out how to cut the emissions across these sectors. Uh, we decided uh, in our proposal, which member states actually accepted, to divide the targets. So this just shows from the left-hand side to the right-hand side, the 2020 individual national targets for cutting or limiting, I should say, their emissions in all these sectors outside industry. You see that the richest countries on the left hand side, those country codes stand for Luxembourg, Denmark and Ireland, who were the richest in per capita in 2005 or 2007, I think. They got the toughest targets and the poorer countries like Bulgaria, Romania, they could actually increase their emissions. Totally collectively, you would have a 10 percent emission reduction from all these sectors. And if you add that to what the emission system, emission trading system for industry, deeper cuts, you will get this 20% collective. So you basically have two chunks. One is emission trading, all for industry, all installations, same rule, same market. And then we take the other chunk, 55%, and we divide it among the member states according to their GDP per capita. It's a very simple formula. We tried. Different, more complicated factors, but this was something that everybody could understand and accept. Now, you might ask, why are these countries where they uh, allowed to increase their emissions in net terms? Well, in 2007, when we drew up the proposal, that was before the recession hit, and our projections show that many of these poor countries would have quite strong economic growth. So, for most of them, this was a limit on how much they could were expected to increase. Just as a you know footnote. Um, So this very simple formula, dividing member states' obligation according to their economic power, worked. Everybody could understand it. It was simply that it was perceived as fair. Um, And what we have actually is a very strict system of reporting and checking these targets. Because not only do they have to meet these targets 2020, we have a trajectory (coughs) from 2013 to 2020. So for each of those years, they need to gradually decrease or limit their emissions. And we check that through annual reports of emissions by member states that the commission check and verify. And then we see if they comply with these annual limits that they have until 2020. And if they don't meet their targets, we can give them penalties, it's really we have strong strong sticks. And then there are a number of carrots, uh, certain flexibilities. If you over emit one year, you can compensate that next year or you can compensate that by emissions that you didn't emit. You were doing better the year before, so you could have saved emission rights. I will spare you the details, but they're both a system of flexibility and sticks. And ultimately, we can always take them to court. So far, member states have complied every year, so it's going pretty well. So this reporting and monitoring uh, that member states collectively have accepted is a very important part of this system. Okay, I have a few minutes left, according to my plan at least, uh, and I will try now to shift focus to international, um, but just to, to, to summarize, so we have, I just focused on the greenhouse gas emission reduction legislation, emissions trading for industry, national targets for the other sectors, and it's up to member states to decide how they address these emissions in the other sectors, it's up to them as long as they meet their targets under this compliance system that I outlined. Um, But we also have legislation for clean energy, for renewables and energy efficiency, and I don't have time to go into that today. Um, But um, that is also very important because these pieces of legislation, increasing energy efficiency and increasing the share of renewable energy, thereby reducing hopefully fossil fuels, they deliver emission reductions as well of course. So it's even more comprehensive than I've showed you. And then there are additional pieces of legislation, technical regulations for cars, for appliances, that support these overall uh, um, cornerstone pieces of legislation, the two ones that I got into today. OK, a few words about the international part. Um, 2015 December, Paris, a good two years ago, after years of not finding common ground, we had an international agreement. Very happy faces, exhausted people after two day, uh, two weeks of negotiations. Everybody agreed. Um, and for the EU, this was seen as a huge success. The man who looks a bit like Santa Claus there, if you can see, this is our energy, energy and climate commissioner, the, comp- uh, the equivalent to a minister uh, in a country who is responsible for EU climate and energy policy. And he works together with all the ministries, of course, climate ministers in the countries. We always negotiate as a collective, right? Uh, so they were very happy. Uh, a win for multilateral. You see all these nice words here and great example of EU unity leadership. And of course, we have to say that, but I think that it is in this case. And we had discussions and presentations earlier these two days that in many areas EU has perhaps struggled in having a real influence outside trade policy of course, internationally. But I would argue that climate policy in the past 10 years has been one of the success stories of EU's international action. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why our leaders on highest level have continued their commitment to it, regardless of the governments and presidents and prime ministers in UK and France, for example, they have all been solidly behind us. Germany, same thing, although they have basically had the same person there for quite some time. Uh, But among the big parties in (coughs) these three key countries, Germany, United Kingdom and France, it has been, they've been staunch supporters of international climate action and EU leadership. That's very important too. And then you have a host of other countries, the, the Benelux ones, the Nordic ones, Austria, who also have gone for it quite actively. So when we put everything together in terms of resources that we have. Uh, in the European Union, and that leads me a bit to this, these earlier discussions on, on our diplomacy and our, our power. Um, remember that when we negotiate internationally, in many areas, and especially in environment climate, we do it with one voice. So we have to agree on a common position first, you know. Other countries, they just need to concern themselves in a way. That can t- take some time sometimes, but when we do have a common position and in an area that has been relatively easy to agree, like climate action, we can be very forceful internationally because then we can come out early, we can show, look, we have done this at home, we are ready to support developing countries in their mitigation efforts and their adaptation challenges, which we do, both collectively through EU funds and money of these big countries individually through their overseas development programs. And when we use then the whole diplomatic corps not only of the European institutions but of the member states, some of them are very big, some of them are former colonial powers, uh, you know, Commonwealth, uh, the Francophonie, the French uh, connection across the world, Spanish speaking countries in Central Latin America. When the Spanish and the Germans have traditionally been very strong in overseas development they were very active too the Scandinavians, the Dutch, and so forth and so on, and coming from a small country myself, I did this on the national level before I joined the commission. You can see that it really gives an added strength and value compared to just being one small country. So then we can really make a difference. I would say for the Paris Agreement, it was of course very important that you had an agreement uh, between the United States and China. That was really groundbreaking, but I would still like to highlight the (coughs) the work that Our commissioner and the ministers did up to Paris in meeting all these small countries, least developed countries, developing countries, what we call small island Pacific states are really threatened by climate change and sea level increase and listening out what were you you know what are you looking for what do you need in agreement and that led to again I will not go through everything here in detail to a very open agreement. Paris agreement is very different from we had before internationally. So what we have now is a pledge and review system. Everyone pledges what they think is reasonable. So the EU went out pretty ambitiously, 40% reduction 2030. That's our pledge internationally. That's why we are so keen to institutionalize this in EU law, so we have strong compliance and delivery instruments. So we can show internationally that you know, we're, we're delivering what we're saying promising. Other countries had. Less ambitious goals. China chose not absolute emissions mis- uh, reductions, they chose to improve their efficiency, incre- uh, decrease the intensity of emissions, so becoming more economic efficient, and so, on and so on. The whole idea is that this group of 197 or so parties will come back every year and then regularly update and make more ambitious uh, targets. And we will now try, the negotiation is now really about setting up a monitoring system how we check this internationally, And here we think in the EU that we have something to show and learn and assist other countries because we have this very good reporting system in place that works good well for us. So um, when we talk about the Paris Agreement, there is really, you don't have any obligations on top of what you have voluntarily chipped in yourself. It's very, very, you don't have a UN body like we had on the Kyoto Protocol checking compliance. For Americans, and not only Americans, this was always very very um, difficult to subject yourself to some kind of international compliance regime, even if it was only for emissions. And these concerns were not only American ones, they were shared by Russia, Japan, other countries. So the Kyoto Protocol simply didn't work. It just set emission limits for a limited group of countries and eventually one one by one dropped out. Now we have a much more open where everyone can participate. Developing countries as they grow richer, they are supposed to take on emission reduction targets. We have not achieved so much in absolute emissions so far. Everyone would tell us this is insufficient, the scientists, NGOs, but we have a procedure, we have a process in place and that's very important. Two more slides. Um, I wanted to tune out on the international part with some interesting observations from the latest conference of the parties. This international organization, the the Framework Convention for Climate Change, that started in 92, uh, they meet annually, all the parties. So you have big delegations coming from all parties across the world, 197 of them. And then they meet for two weeks. And uh, in the last week, they fly in the ministers and they try then to agree in plenary on And the latest big agreement was the Paris Agreement. Now it's basically follow up business. But we meet annually. Next meeting is going to be in Poland last meeting, latest meeting sorry, was in Bonn in Germany. And very interesting here was that the work that was being done, as I said already, was about implementing the uh, Paris Agreement, setting up rules for transparency, how do you share information about how well you are proceeding, progressing towards your targets that you pledged, Uh, how do you account for the submissions, how do you account for the financial support that the rich countries have promised to developing countries. That's a very, very important part uh, of the Paris Agreement. So of course, the developing countries on the southern hemisphere and elsewhere, they will say, you can't simply demand that we will have to cut our emissions. We have, you know, we, have, we want to grow. We have all these things that we need to put in place. And if you want us to start already now having ambitious mitigation policies, you need to help us with knowledge. With technology, with financial assistance, and this is also part of these negotiations. Um, what I wanted to say, what I could see as a say is a trend shift is that shift in the participation is of course all these parties they represent governments, but you will always have a lot of other non-government observers participating. Uh, and being present at the negotiations. And you will have NGOs, you will have groups of indigenous people, you will have business groups, uh, different civil society groups, they all convene around these negotiations. And it was an amazing presence both in Paris but continued in Bonn. So what it seems seems to be happening is that you have an increased bottom-up action that complements this top-down, you know. Heads of representatives of governments meet and they agree, but there is always a bubbling and increasing pressure from other groups saying, you know, we're keeping an eye on you. If you don't deliver, you know, we will remind you and you need to do more, by the way. And you need to think more about this and that and so on. And this, I think, is a very important part. We see an increasing network globally of local organizations, of cities, of businesses who network across countries and across continents and are starting to play a much more uh, active role in this. And I think that, personally, I think this is very good. And final interesting point was that the US had a very small delegation, uh, hardly surprising, in 2017 in Bonn. But they were probably one of the biggest presence ever by Americans. Because you had all these cities, states, and business, covenant of the mayors, you name it, who came there, three, four, five, I don't know how many governors who showed up. And they wanted to give the message that the United States are still doing a lot, but it's now on local and state level. How this will play out remains to be seen. That's part of what I'm trying to figure out. And it's a very uh, exciting, interesting thing to study, I must say. But so I think given the fact that we are far from reaching our international uh, efforts that we need to stabilize emissions on 2%, 2 degrees warming compared to pre-industrial levels, we are far from reaching that, we all know that but we now at least have some kind of international procedure, process that is agreed and supported. I showed you almost 180 countries have already ratified it, entered into force within one year. That's amazing for being an international agreement. So we have a lot of momentum there. So I wanted to perhaps stop on that bit of a positive note. And for those of you who really want to dig into this deeper, I would recommend you to download this book, EU Climate Policy Explained. It's an interesting, easy to read, perhaps non-academic book written by my bosses and other colleagues who I've been working with and for in uh, drawing up and negotiating uh, energy, clean energy and climate legislations. And the good news is that you can download it for free from our website. So it's common, what do you say? uh, It's available for everyone and on demand it was actually translated not only to, to other European languages and UN languages, but also into Chinese and Korean, so there's quite some interest in this field also by non-academics. So that's very nice for someone like me who's working with this That see that there's a lot of interest in what we're doing.